When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Burned by Books. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. I'm starting this podcast in the hopes of answering the question of how books help us imagine new kinds of community for ourselves and for others. This first episode is beginning during the quarantine period of COVID-19, and this is my way of bringing some small sense of social connection to the things we do in our quietest moments of the day, our reading and writing. I plan to bring a new episode every two weeks where I'll spend some time with one special book, usually something quite contemporary, but not necessarily. And then I will interview people whose lives are dedicated to books. That can be writers, readers, bookstore owners, anyone whose life is made fuller and richer by the process of making, reading, and being involved with books. This is Burned by Books. So the book that I've been thinking the most about this week is Maria Gainza's Optic Nerve. It's a book that's difficult to talk about in many ways because its wonder is in how it breaks all the rules of what a novel is supposed to do, what kind of story it's supposed to tell, how it's supposed to develop a narrator in a particular recognizable way, an optic nerve just refuses to do that. Gainsa is a art critic, and she has been a correspondent for the New York Times in Argentina, and this is her first work of fiction, although nothing about it says first work. It's accomplished in every possible way I could imagine, from the beauty of its language to its completeness as a text. But its completeness certainly does not follow any recognizable narrative arc for how a character should emerge. And yet, its feelings, the way in which it's able to 
direct us to think about um, a character's evolution via artworks is something truly unique and wonderful. So Gainza sets up this novel by way of a narrator thinking about her, her family, her life in Buenos Aires, her mortality, and in each step of this, almost thinking aloud, she points us toward an artist, toward a particular artwork, and asks us to think deeply, not in the way that we would sit in front of a painting in a museum and think about a, a work of art in that way, but asks us to think about the process of the creation of a work of art, the genius, the layman's work that goes into something like a large-scale painting. And in that process of looking, she points us to things in the way in which a painting comes to be that then reflect back upon this character. And it's a, it's a really spectacular experience to encounter artworks who... In in my case, um, I just have very little experience with most of these artworks, and yet they become deeply visual, and the stories, the backstories of the artists who created them um, are as fresh and as lively and novelistic as the best of contemporary fiction. An example that will demonstrate how this novel operates in dreamy tangents where the author's thinking about autobiographical details and i say autobiographical details sort of falsely here because it's a novel um, but it falls in a tradition of recent works of what's called auto fiction in that that few times during this reading this novel did i ever feel like i wasn't reading the author's memoir of much of their life um, from childhood to the present and yet that is one of the fantasies and in many ways falsehoods that we rely on for from fiction and that's that it can make us believe that it's a real person's life when it is presenting itself very much as fictional, imaginative, developed from the author's imagination and likely drawn from experiences, but in no way claiming the same territory that memoir and autobiography would claim. But in any case, when the, when the narrator is narrating a moment from her life, she will have a, a sort of smooth transition into thinking about an artist and some of their key works, either well-known or in some cases very much the B-sides of a well-known author's collection that happen to make an impact on this particular narrator's life. I was quite compelled by the sections on Toulouse-Lautrec, who's an artist that I could say vaguely I've seen enough of to be familiar with style and sensibility, but so much is sort of drawn from the personal histories of the artist and turned into novelistic um, engagement that I found myself encountering 
Lettrec totally anew. And I'll just read a, a small section in which we are given a sense of how Lettrec, who was born with significant disabilities that set him apart from his extremely um, august and aristocratic family who spent most of their lives on horses, something that because of the way in which his legs operated to lose Lettrec was, was never able to participate in. The family coursed overflowed with vital energy. In the 18th century, Adelaide de Toulouse had boasted that no man existed, neither servant nor lord, city dweller nor country mouse, with whom she had not shared a bed. Such hedonists were the Toulouses, and so simultaneously opposed to the idea of outsiders getting hands on their fortune that they began intermarrying. Henri, the result of the marriage between Alphonse and his first cousin Adele was born with an unknown genetic disorder, possibly Sinodisostis. His bones were extremely brittle, and his torso developed to adult size while his legs remained those of a child. At the age of 12, he fell from a chair and broke his left femur, and then the right in another minor fall soon after. In his late teens, he was four feet nine, and despite all the attentions he received, he would grow less than another inch over the course of the rest of his life. Quote, we Toulouses get in the saddle the moment we are born, said Count Alphonse, but not my son. The leg breaks meant that he had to spend his time in the dullest pastime ever invented, the seeing of doctors. He spent his days on the terrace that overlooked the palace grounds, sprawled on a lawn chair, his world restricted to a view of the walnut trees above and the army of physicians that buzzed around him. All he wanted in the world was to straddle a horse, but he found himself condemned to the sidelines, and so he began painting them. Nothing in the world electrifies me so, he told his father running his paintbrush over the nostrils of a sorrel mare as it dipped its head for him. The Count, as though picking up the thread of a long-ago conversation, replied, Remember, my boy, that the healthy life can only be lived out of doors. Anything that is not free will deform and eventually die. That kind of evocative biographical sketch of an artist comes to be a poignant moment in the life of the narrator herself and offers a way in which to tie together these threads and anecdotes of a, of a full life through these historical um, tales. And at the same time, we are treated to a critic's eye of Toulouse's major qualities as a painter and an artist in a way that draws back our attention to maybe paintings we've always known were Lettrecs, but had thought very little of except as you know part of a particular movement. This is all to say that Optic Nerve is a startling experience, a novel of extraordinary uh, strengths the beauty of its language, its strong emotional pulls, and its use of ekphrasis, 
a term for the way in which visual art can be described in literature that has its roots going back to the very earliest things we call prose and in a way that is novel, both in the sense of bringing the artist's eye into the novelistic form, but novel in the sense of very new. And certainly Optic Nerve felt very new to me. I would encourage you to read it. It's a translated novel, um, but it has nothing of the translator's mark, which perhaps for some is an annoyance. Um, for me, in this particular case, it was proved um, a dexterous and, and professional hand on the translator's part that I had remind myself again and again that this was translated from the Spanish. The translator is Thomas Bunstead, who's been doing some incredible work bringing many of the, the sort of young, hot South American authors into English recently with and other stories and other major presses. So I'm going to recommend Maria Gainz's Optic Nerve to you as another one to stack on your bedside table. I'm so excited to have for my first ever podcast episode, um, the author and my friend, Eleanor Henderson. She is the author of the novels 10,000 Saints, a New York Times top 10 book of the year, and 12 Miles Straight, a San Francisco Chronicle best book of the year, as well as Labor Day, true birth stories by today's best women writers. In her day job, she is the Robert Ryan Distinguished Professor of Writing at Ith Ithaca College and co-director of the New Voices Festival, a literary, literary event very close to this podcast's heart. Um, because I don't know when this episode is going to be airing, um, I don't know how close it will be to the festival having gone off, um, but Eleanor, it's really nice to talk to you just before the first ever, ever virtual New Voices Festival. How are you feeling about it? I'm nervous, Chris. I'm nervous every year. And then afterward, I wonder why I was nervous. They but always go so excited. well. <laughs> it's mostly that anticipation and, and worry about, you know, throwing a big party and worrying that nobody will come. But I think that we're going to have more people than ever this year, actually, because it's virtual. So I'm really excited about that and, and excited to see some New Voices alumni coming back. I know that is the one big upside to this is that we might have a, a pretty record crowd of folks and maybe even, you know, we've been putting the word out um, locally, but also nationally and internationally. So maybe we'll get some some bored folks um, around the world who need that literary literary spice in their life. And, and that would be a wonderful thing for the festival. And maybe that'll roll over into when we go back to to face-to-face -face festivals maybe we'll have more more folks than than we did in the past i'm hoping so it might even be heartwarming 
I, boy, I need the heartwarming right now. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, in informally, we talk a lot about how difficult it is to, to get anything done, at least in terms of the things we normally count as our like daily work and our the things that provide us sustenance outside of the big family obligations that we have now with with COVID and quarantine. But I wondered, can can writing even happen during the pandemic time um, with homeschooling and college teaching and festival planning and being anxious? Um, is there any time left for you for the creative mind? Well, I'm surprised to find that for me, the answer is yes. And I'm mostly surprised because usually I'm fighting for writing time. And because I think it's a totally reasonable response to this pandemic to stop absolutely all creative process. And I'm hearing from a lot of my friends who are writers that they're, you know, sitting down and staring at screens and, um, and or, you know, busy with families and, uh, and other obligations or worse. But the reason why it's working for me is because it's kind of meant a recalibration of my time. So I usually get up early in the morning to write around maybe 5.15, 5.30, and usually 6.15, I have to start getting ready for work and getting my kids ready for school. But it turns out my kids are really lazy. And so if I let them <laughs> sleep in, they'll sleep. My, my 11-year-old, I have an 8- and 11-year-old boy, and my 11-year-old slept till 10 o'clock this morning. And luckily that his first you know, online class doesn't start till 11. So I wrote from, you know, six to eight or nine, which has like doubled or tripled my writing time. So um, that has felt really luxurious and lucky and rare. That's really um, wonderful. Yeah. And and I'm so, I, I just can't believe that he slept that long. That <laughs> yeah, well, just sounds like a dream. You now I guess he's turning into a teenager, as they say. Yeah, it was pretty lucky. And I think also the fact, you know, that I'm working on a book that's about the impact of illness on my family um, has made made that transition that much more natural. You know, I think if I were working on a novel or just starting a project, I would feel pretty paralyzed. But um, I found that this project has allowed me a kind of space to continue the work that I'm doing. And again, I, I felt really grateful for this project to keep me keep me company and keep me focused. In that same vein, I, I think about the writing process, at least for myself, as kind of hermetic and and pretty intensely introverted anyway. And then our lives have in some senses become, well, in some ways more introverted and in some ways like incredibly family extroverted. But um, while, you know, our teaching lives are incredibly extroverted, um, you know, when those two pieces are normally in full function and you're living an extroverted life for most of the day and an introverted one in those pockets of time that you're writing, how do you square those two? Um, and do they do you have a good way that they exist in your in your schedule? I think that is a question that I'm constantly trying to answer and, and I'm probably answering it in different ways now as, as others are. I think that there are parts of my personality that are extremely introverted and parts that are extremely extroverted. So I suppose that's one reason why I feel so suited to teaching and writing. 
I don't think I'd be able to do one without the other. Mm. But on the other hand, um, the phrase um, open book, like this idea of um, uh, being an open book is interesting. I often feel that I'm being my honest self, like the most open book when I'm writing alone. And there's something kind of performative about teaching, right? Um, you always have to be on, which is rather exhilarating and ego feeding, but, um, but a little bit draining. Um, so I think one of the interesting things about this time is that those identities are becoming merged in a way, you know, like I'm talking to you right now from my zoom closet as it's come to be known to me and my family, um, where I have like some dirty jeans behind me and usually like a dying house plant. And my students are seeing that self that feels a little bit closer to the sort of authentic non-performative professor self. And oh, that's um, funny to think of it as like a, a merging of the performative and non-performative teaching self. I didn't, I didn't think of that at all. But you're, you're totally right. I think so. I think that's the way I've been able to reconcile it anyway. And and it's a weird feeling, right? Because you know, on the one hand, um, it's nice to kind of compartmentalize our identities in order to get through the day, like. Usually I can't do any writing in my office. I like to go to my office to do work and I'll write in coffee shops or, or write at home. And we don't really get to choose that right now. Right. So everything is sort of um, sort of merged. And that kind of integration of of our identities, I think, can be rewarding. You know, it's it's exhausting to try to constantly compartmentalize. So for me anyway, um, and especially given the project that I'm working on, it does feel like having those kind of various spheres of my creative existence um, integrated. It, it feels um, it, it's a little bit of a relief. Does that resonate with you at all? It does. I, I would say that when I'm on a, a writing kick, that it feels like I am just able to be very sort of true to myself when, however, I'm writing something that is a, feels like a bit of a drag, at least in its early moments, I tend to find myself feeling quite lonely. And so one thing that is nice now about having, um, you know, people at home is that I don't, I don't feel that loneliness. There's always a sound of someone um, running around. And even if I'm not loving the thing I'm writing at the moment, I think that's okay. Like there's life still happening. Yeah. That, and that's been a relief too, frankly, as you know, it can be, it can be a drag to not have our privacy and our time. Um, but it, but it's comforting too. Yeah. And I, I, and it also makes me remember that during this quarantine period, there are a lot of people who can't count on that and are maybe inside a, an apartment or a house or, uh, and they don't have anybody there. And they're, you know, if, if it's not via electronic means, then they're really, really separated from folks. So I feel Absolutely. lucky and, and privileged on that end. Absolutely. So yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about your, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of your novels and they, you know, when I first started work at Ithaca College um, and read 10,000 Saints, it was was such an impactful novel for me at that time. Um, 
and you know continues to be and your work has has continued to enrich my life as as a reader and i'm interested in the fact that you in your two novels at least have been concerned with the stories of communities of outsiders whether it's that straight edge punk musicians or mixed race families and the sharecropping south uh, is this a particular interest of yours outside of fiction, um, or do you feel like literature is fundamentally an artwork dedicated to thinking about the inner lives of outsiders? Mm, I think that's so beautifully said, um, that literature is fundamentally about the inner lives of outsiders. I definitely agree with that. I don't think I have necessarily a revolutionary perspective on this or anything, but um, most of my favorite people outside of fiction and in fiction are probably considered outsiders. Um, in fact, one of my favorite books of all time is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. It's the book that probably shaped me the most mm. as a reader and a girl. <laughs> uh, but the community aspect that you mentioned is interesting to me, too. You know, I think I'm drawn not just to that isolated outsider, but the way that the outsider kind of reckons with society or invents her own society, her own model for living. And this is often because, you know, the models presented to the outsider haven't been adequate enough to include everyone. So I do think that the tension that drives my two novels um, and the memoir I'm writing now, actually, is that conflicting need to fit in and the desire to stand apart. Hmm. I think that's been a driving tension in my own life, too, really. Um, it kind of gets back to your question about writing and teaching, you know, that the sort of performative self and um, the self who just wants to be home in her bathrobe all day, just writing by herself and it's so um, true. I feel like there's so many teachers in particular who who have really split personalities in that way and are fundamentally introverted and just cherish, uh, you know, privacy and, and time to themselves or time within a kind of family unit and then also have this part of their life that's so um, public and, yeah. and demands a uh, not only extroversion, but a a, porm, a performativity that is that's different than almost any kind of career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder sometimes if it's true too of you know actors and musicians and mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. kind of you know inability to reconcile those two seemingly different aspects of the personality can be really difficult. Um, but I do think that I have found as an individual that I've been um, so drawn to both of those identities and both of those needs, right. The need to fit in and the need to sort of be alone um, that I think have fueled, fueled all of the work that I've written, even if I hadn't realized it at the time and, um, and probably, you know, drawn me to a lot of the, the writing that I love too. I'm guessing it was fairly mind-blowing to see the movie adaptation of your novel come into being um, and then to have it come to life with one of your favorite actors, Ethan Hawke, in a starring role. And I'm wondering if you would tell me a little bit about that. It was mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing and gratifying and really weird, really surreal. 
I, you know, have loved Ethan Hawke since I was, I don't know, 15 when I first saw Reality Bites and dyed my hair brown to look like Winona Ryder. <laughs> and Winona Ryder was my, copy. like... <laughs> Do you remember his first novel, The Hottest State? It was a very hot book. I have that first edition of that, which he did sign for me on the set, which was really wonderful. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I really love him. Um, and I loved the um, creators of the movie, the director screenwriter duo, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini. And I really loved and trusted their vision for this movie. But it was really a strange experience to be on a set where everybody was working, everybody was at work, just doing a movie. And Probably not only had most of the people on the set not read the book, but probably most of them didn't know it was a book. Do you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> and so, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, that's so crazy. So they just thought it was a, a movie written straight to script form. I think so. Or if they didn't know, you know, if they knew it was a book, they probably didn't give it a lot of thought. And so um, it was humbling to just be an extra person on the set. But I think once I understood what my role was it was nice to just kind of be in the wallpaper and um and just watch this story um, unfold and you know it reminds me a little bit of the your earlier question about you know writing versus teaching and um I definitely felt that strange out-of-body experience of seeing my words come to life you know seeing these actors that I loved say dialogue that I'd written maybe 10 years before, like on my couch in my bathrobe and just, um, really feeling, um, this privileged experience, but a very lonely experience at the same time, you know, that I was the only one who was having that particular experience of that moment. So I remember just kind of standing in the, in this hospital scene, this old, um, hospital in Brooklyn on this very, very snowy day. This was during the uh, polar um, polar vortex. Is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were kind of snowed in at this hospital. And I remember just standing behind the camera and just like very quietly weeping because I was so moved that these characters That's were so acting out the story. But then like then the hairdressers coming in and like, asking me to move so we can look for a hairbrush or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and if if I remember correctly, they they sought out a lot of um input from you and and had you come to the set quite a bit. They did. You know, they didn't um ask me to write or look at the script, which I appreciated. You know, there was a pretty firm boundary around the script and I'd accepted that it was going to be written by somebody else. And, uh, I ended up really appreciating that in the end because I realized I'm not a screenwriter by training and wouldn't have been able to see, um, my way through the story. You know, like there were probably three chapters, um, that, that I needed in order to make something happen in the book. And these screenwriters were able to do it in a single scene, you know, let's just get everybody around the table at the restaurant and we'll get it done. So it was, um, streamlined for sure. Um, but I was there to, you know, do really handy things on the set. Like the one helpful thing, um, during that day in the Brooklyn hospital was they came up to me and asked me, what would Eliza's birthday be? Because they were making her like a medical bracelet for, for the scene oh where gosh. she gives birth to me. 
<laughs> That's so <laughs> granular. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. That was what I contributed. Um, so super strange, super fun. I would do it again for sure. Oh, yeah. It was uh, one thing I loved about the adaptation is that there are scenes that feel really like crystallized as in a way that is similar to my reading experience of them. And then there are scenes that are totally feel like something entirely different. Um, and so I liked to have both things that kind of were conjured in my, my mind in the reading show up in the movie and then have very new experiences as well, which is wonderful. Um, so I know, um, because of our, our relationship with a bookstore in town that you are not only a frequenter of independent bookstores, but a champion of independent bookstores and our economic downturn turn, um, that we're just beginning to see, uh, emerge as a, as a massive recession has been particularly hard on bookstores who already operate on such razor thin margins to begin with. And your personal connection to Ithaca's cooperatively owned bookstore, Buffalo street books is one that I have, you know, followed with great delight because it is a bookstore that I consider almost a, a second home. Could you talk a little bit about how that bookstore and bookstores in general are working to adapt to our newly distanced lives? Sure. So I'm on the executive board of Buffalo Street Books, as you know, since I think you were the one who nominated me. <laughs> and um, like a lot of independent bookstores, you know, as you say, the store has operated on a really thin budget for a long time. It has a really interesting history as a cooperative bookstore. And so it's been struggling to stay afloat for a while. And the pandemic has brought about a really interesting moment because in some ways, it's, of course, the worst thing that could happen to a bookstore. We had to let go of almost all of our employees, except for our general manager, Lisa Swayze, who has been working really hard behind the scenes to fulfill orders on our new website, among other things. But at the same time, it's an interesting and exciting moment because people are pulling together all across the literary community. The bookstore has been getting a great deal of support and guidance from the American Booksellers Association and, and other organizations that are seeing stores through and um, among the, the many ways that the store is attempting to raise money, including um, local, state, national grants and loans, um, was a GoFundMe campaign that just closed after meeting its goal of $25,000. So, so amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. Um, and we've been really grateful for the support of the community, which um, has has come out uh, time and again. Uh, and it also is kind of giving us a chance to reimagine the kind of store that we want um, with a, the kind of structure that we think best serves the store. So um, as in you know, many facets of life, it's been um, it's been both a, a real a loss and, and also an opportunity. My hope is, is that we're all buying enough books online um, from places that aren't the giant behemoth um, yes. that we can keep stores at least enough out of the drowning zone um, that when things reemerge, we'll have those incredible communal social places that bookstores are as physical spaces that we can continue yeah, to go to. 
And you can now buy books at buffalostreetbooks.com, including books that are actually on the shelves in the store. So now that they're connected to the Indie Commerce website, we are able to fulfill orders um, that much more conveniently. So folks across the country can order from the bookstore or um, um, also um, bookshop.org is a great new invention that came out just before the pandemic that's been serving a lot of folks who are trying to support local bookstores and indies in order to, as you say, um, you know, put money back into these communities that need it so much. I hadn't heard of it. So it's bookshop.com. Yeah. Book, bookshop.org. I but, think. Dot org. And, okay. Yeah. And um, you can actually select Buffalo street books as the store that you want to support when you go to that shop. Um, so it's, it's a fairly new venture, but I think, um, the timing was right for it to really serve a lot of folks. So I wanted to ask about what you're working on now. Um, I know that it's a memoir and it's in a stage where, um, I'm, I'm not sure how much you're, you're ready to talk about it. Um, but if you're willing to share just a little tidbit and then maybe also if you've got plans for things in the coming down the pike, like new novels, short stories. Yeah, there's no novel and no short stories. I'm pretty sure I have no idea how to write fiction any longer. Like if I knew before, I think maybe the <laughs> please, pandemic Please don't say that. Me. A lot of people are depending on you writing another novel. So don't don't abandon oh, I, it. That. But maybe, maybe I can relearn. We will rebuild. Um, but I am deeply immersed in this memoir I mentioned, um, which is about marriage and illness uh, in particular about my husband's chronic and largely undiagnosed illnesses and what it's like to live with someone who suffers. And I'm closing in on the end of a first draft, I think. I feel uh, really lucky that the book is already under contract and I don't have to try to sell it in the middle of a pandemic. Hmm, and also that. that I've been, yeah, that I've been able to work um, with the steady guidance of a, an editor that I love and trust. So that's been really helpful in exploring this genre that feels new and scary to me. And I, I actually had a talk with her last week, and she tells me that she thinks it might be um, published as early as next summer. And I kind of believe her that the world will continue and books will be published beyond this week. Um, but we'll see. Well, the world continuing is assured whatever form it will be in i can guarantee we will be looking for books to read and your memoir will be first on my list when it comes out okay. uh i wanted to close us up today with um a just a question about a book that maybe you return to again and again sort of annually um, one that provides a certain kind of solace and maybe something that's the newest thing you've read that you're just dying to tell everyone about well i know this might be hard to believe and i'm a little embarrassed to admit it to you chris because i know you're such an amazing reader and rereader but i don't really reread books can I still be on your podcast? No, I well, we're just going to have to cut this out and no one will ever know. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> well, when I do reread books, it's often because I'm teaching them or hmm. I I do often reread the same page or paragraph of a book because I want to like memorize its exquisite beauty or wisdom. 
but I just feel that life is too short and I'm too lazy to read a book more than once because <laughs> there are so many books to read. I don't know how you read as much as you do. I really don't. Um, but okay, I will, I will answer. I won't cheat. So probably the book that I most often return to when I was a younger writer and reread quite frequently, um, was a short story collection that I would love to plug by my undergraduate writing professor, mm. Robert Cohen's The Varieties of Romantic Experience. Have you ever read any Robert Cohen? No, no, I haven't. The I Varieties of Romantic so, Experience. Okay. Yeah, The Varieties of Romantic Experience. So I'd actually read many of the stories before they came out in, in book form. I would like track them down in literary magazines when I was in college. Uh, and I just inhaled them. I wanted so badly to write a Robert Cohen story. Um, but what I actually discovered later after going back to them was that I'd basically been plagiarizing them. <laughs> so, <laughs> not that anybody would probably notice, but my brain had been wired through his syntax, you know, and I began to kind of think and write through the rhythm of his sentences. Mm. So maybe that's one reason um, why I don't reread much anymore for fear of contamination. <laughs> I'm really porous, it turns out. Well, David Foster Wallace, I remember, said at a reading that I went to in, I don't know, it must have been like 1998, that he, someone asked him what he was reading and, and what he read regularly. And he said, I don't read. It's too, and I think he used your same word. I think he said, it's contaminating. And I need to have like a pure sense of what I'm working on. So you are, you're, you're in good, good stead by not rereading okay. a lot. Well, yeah, me and David Foster Wallace, you know, we don't want to be contaminated by <laughs> literature. Thank you for saving me up. That's totally what I was going for. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of this book, but now that you mentioned David Foster Wallace, I would love to plug a book that I read recently called In the Land of Men by Adrian Miller. She was the first female literary editor at Esquire. She got the job when she was 25 and inherited, as you can imagine, um, uh, this sort of legendary um, reputation of, of fiction that came along with a magazine, um, mostly read by men. Mm -hmm. And not only is the book a really riveting exploration of what it's like to um, live with and work with men um, while also um, trying to, you know, uh, perform some kind of power within um, those relationships. But it's also a really beautiful and int intimate and surprising portrait of David Foster Wallace, who was close with Adrian Miller. Um, they had a romantic relationship briefly. She was also his editor for years. And in all of the work that I've seen and stories that I've heard told about David Foster Wallace, um, he never really quite like lost that um, that kind of, you know, mythos, that polish. Um, and he really comes across as a real and troubled individual. And so anybody who is interested in, in David Foster Wallace or literature or women or New York City in, in the 90s, I really recommend it. I can't wait for both of those. They sound like um, just really wonderful books, and I'm going to make sure that we get them on our on our website and the social media. So if people want to track them down, um, that they can do that. 
Well, Eleanor, oh, thank you so, so much. Um, it was such a pleasure to have you be my first interview for the Burned by Books podcast. And I know that I am not alone in being anxious for your book to be published and for the novels that will most certainly, whether you know it or not, follow. And and so thanks so much. And I'll look forward to hearing more from you soon. Thank you, Chris. And I can't wait to hear more from this podcast. You're my favorite reader. The world needs more of you. Thanks, Eleanor. I'm planning on ending each episode by recommending three books that I hope will inch you toward, by an hour, a day, the moment in which our social proximity can be much closer and that our lives will feel more physically entwined. But until then, I think having a few books that can help us be diverted, be entertained, be consumed by the process of reading ourselves into an imagined world is a good thing. The first one I want to recommend is a little bit on the nose, but it's just too good not to tell you about, and that is Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven. I happened to read it about a month before everything got locked down, and in hindsight, it seems prescient. It's I think one of the great outbreak pandemic disaster novels that were ever written, in part because it is so much more concerned with the nature of community at a time of abject strife, um, a time in which our normal structures of community are broken down um, and we don't have them to rely on anymore. And Emily St. John Mandel does such a beautiful job of humanizing the small struggles that people in those periods of abjection make just to build a day, um, just to build a relationship uh, and to find ways in which to um, look beyond the smallest and most important needs of shelter and food to find something like the beginnings of a society. It may freak you out, and so I'm offering it with a warning. It freaks me out even in retrospect, but it is such a wonderful novel. Something much more diverting uh, and just amazingly fun is Leah Bardugo's The Ninth House. One could pitch this as an adult Harry Potter, but I like to think of it as the great takedown of Ivy League toxic masculinity with some magic thrown in. I can't say enough about how um, encapsulated I was by its fantasies. It is a book that's so knowing on the one hand about its campus. It takes place at, at Yale. And also wanting to really set fire to the things that we expect out of an old institution like that. And it does it with imagination and great fun. 
And finally, maybe the book I've enjoyed the most other than Optic Nerve over the last month is brand new. It's called Hex. It's by Rebecca Dinnerstein Knight. And it is about the cycling obsessions of a graduate student in plant biology with her advisor as her graduate work comes to an end very unfortunately due to the poisoning of one of her classmates she becomes more and more um, invested in the idea that all poisons are both a cure and a um, and a poison and she starts to make these very deadly poisons in her apartment when she doesn't have access to a, a graduate school lab anymore it's really a story about the ways in which these power dynamics between teachers and students can spiral out of control, but it's written with such verve, uh, you just will be propelled through it, both because you'll love being inside the mind of this really tortured and wonderful narrator, but also because um, it's really um, it, it's, it's a wonderful romp. So... That puts us at an end. So that's it for now. I want to thank Isaac Schneider for our amazing in and out music. And I hope I can get you to go to our social media site on Instagram, Burned by Books. And there you'll find more about upcoming episodes and ways to stay in touch with what we're doing with the podcast. And I hope you'll spread the word, subscribe, and listen whenever you can. It's been a pleasure. This is Burned by Books. <laughs>